Hey everybody, welcome back to the Brewery Ministries podcast. In this episode, we're going to wrap up our study on Mark chapter 6, the passage about Jesus walking on water, and discussing whether or not he really said that he was God when he was standing there on the water saying, fear not guys. They're in the middle of this storm, out in a boat, they see Jesus, they think he's a ghost, they're terrified, and he says something that in Greek is equal to the name of God, I am, that was given to Moses when God appeared to him at the burning bush. Now this is debated. I won't go into all of this because we did discuss this on the previous episode, but I am, in Greek, could also be translated as it is I, I am here, and a couple other similar phrases. So in our last episode, we looked at the context of the rest of the story to try to figure out, okay, which did Jesus mean? Was he trying to say he was God or was he trying to say, don't be afraid, I'm here. And because he's standing on water, which is something that God was depicted as doing in the Old Testament, poetically, and because at that time, people believed only gods could walk on water, like Orion, Zeus, and ghosts could not walk on water because that was their kryptonite. It was depicted as killing them in a number of ancient stories. We determined that depicting Jesus walking on water is a way of saying that he's God. So if Jesus really goes out there and walks on water, he's symbolically trying to make a statement whether or not he said, it is I, or I am. I've been doing some reading from Word Biblical Commentary by Robert Gulich, and I'd like to share some more about what I found, because one of the lingering questions I had was, why did the majority of Bible translations translate Jesus as saying, it is I, instead of I am? I mentioned I made that YouTube short video about this passage, And I had a lot of people saying, no, that doesn't mean I am. Jesus said, I am here. It is I. And in reality, they're all valid translations. So the context has to tip us over the edge one way or the other. And why would Bibles, Bible translators who are professionals at translating, not translate this as Jesus saying, I am? That is a good question. What I found in Word Biblical Commentary is this. Robert believes that Mark was trying to depict Jesus as saying, do not fear, I am God, by saying I am, but that the disciples at this point in the story interpreted what he said as it is I, or I'm here. So they're sitting there hearing Jesus say what he said, and they're like, wait, no, he can't have meant what I think I heard him say. He can't have been trying to say that he's God. That's crazy. So he must have meant it is I. You see what I mean? The Greek phrase is ambiguous and can be taken either way. So Robert thinks Mark was trying to depict the disciples as not understanding what Jesus said and interpreting it incorrectly. Now he has a couple other points of evidence to support this theory, and that's the end of the story. He thinks the end of the story, the end of this chapter, brings clarity to what Jesus really meant. Now there's two things he points out. First, Peter is ultimately going to say, truly, this man is the Son of God. Now, that's really tricky, too, because today, a lot of people think the phrase Son of God cannot mean Jesus was also God himself. So we have to think about what that phrase meant 
at the time Jesus was living, because that's probably the definition Mark would be using. Today, we're kind of thinking more in black and white terminology, but at the first century, around that time, and even in the Old Testament period, the phrase Son of God had kind of a dual meaning to it. It actually meant the human incarnation of God. So Pharaoh in the Old Testament was thought of as the human incarnation of the god Ra. Well, here Mark is saying that Jesus is the Son of God. And to Mark, that would probably mean that Jesus is the human incarnation of God. So that's a little bit tricky for us today because we like to think in terms of cut and dry meanings and definitions. I think that's why so many people struggle with the concept of the Trinity so much, because there's overlap between Jesus and God. And that overlap is kind of hard for us, because it's kind of a gray area, right? But people would be able to look at Jesus and think, Jesus is the Son of God and God himself at the same time. It's like there's overlap between the two figures, and yet they're separate. That's why we say they're separate but the same. So remember that whenever you come across that phrase, Son of God. And Mark probably tried to end this part of the story by having Peter say, surely Jesus is the Son of God, as a way of saying Jesus is actually God. The second clue here is when Jesus turns to them and he says, do you guys still not understand about the loaves? Now what this is a reference to is the previous story. There's a story called the feeding of the 5,000 a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 6, right before this section about walking on water. And in that story, there's a giant crowd of people that Jesus has been meeting with, and there's not enough food to go around. It's late in the day, and people are starving. They've traveled from a long ways. And so Jesus takes a small amount of food, bread and fish, and he multiplies it. It's depicted as a miraculous event so that he can feed 5,000 people with very little food. He had five loaves of bread and two fish, and he prays to God to multiply the food and ends up feeding this whole crowd. Major miraculous event. Right after that, the disciples go off in the boat, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray, and then we have this story where Jesus comes down off the mountain, which is symbolic in itself because gods were thought to have dwelled and lived on mountains. So here you're having a depiction of God coming down off of the mountain to be with people, and he's out walking on the water. I used to struggle to see the connection between Jesus walking on water and Jesus' statement, do you guys still not understand about the bread? But Robert's commentary brought some clarity to that for me. The story about Jesus multiplying the bread was probably supposed to make the disciples think about what God did during the book of Exodus, when the people are wandering in the wilderness and they have no food, and God provided bread from heaven called manna. Well, think about that feeding of the 5,000 story. Who's multiplying the bread? You could look at it and you say, well, Jesus prayed and the bread multiplied. Or you could look at it as Jesus is actually the source of the bread. He's the one holding the bread, multiplying it in the story. If that's the case, then that story is depicting Jesus as God by showing Jesus as this miraculous provider. So put all of those things together, and then at the end of the story, you've got Jesus asking them, did you guys not understand what I was trying to symbolize, what I was trying to show you when I multiplied the loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people? Did you guys not connect the dots there yet? All of a sudden, Jesus' statement about the bread makes more sense. It's a way to resolve 
the walking on water story and resolve the moment of, well, did he say I am or did he say it is I? Did he call himself God or was he just trying to say I'm here? So Robert Gulick's theory is that Mark was trying to put the reader in the shoes of Jesus's followers in that moment where they're not sure who Jesus is and they're doubting. So if Bible translators translated Jesus's words as fear not, it is I, even though it could be taken as I am, he's trying to put you in their shoes in that moment of, no, surely he didn't say he's God. He must have meant this. It's really interesting. I realize that some people might be a little bit uncomfortable with that because they want a more clear-cut answer, but let's just count all the other ways in the story that Jesus was depicted as God himself. We've got the previous story where he's multiplying the bread. We've got Jesus coming down off of a mountain, which is a symbol. We have Jesus walking on water, like God was depicted as doing in the Psalms and in Job. We've got his statement, even though it's ambiguous, where he says something in Greek that could be taken as I am or it is I. And then we've got Peter calling him the son of God, which to us doesn't sound like Peter's saying Jesus is actually God. But at that time, that's what that would have meant, that Jesus was the human incarnation of God. You've got five different ways that Jesus is depicted as God in the story, contextually, metaphorically. That can help you decide what Jesus said when he was standing there on the waves. All right, I know we've taken this story and we've kind of beaten it to death, but I'm hoping you're starting to see how many layers we can actually pull away and how deep these stories actually get. Let's take a break, and then I'm gonna answer a few questions that I got online regarding this story. common question that people had is what language did Jesus speak? Because he actually spoke Aramaic, and if the Gospels were written in Greek, that makes people a little bit uncomfortable because there's a language barrier. So when we come to a passage where Jesus said something that implies that he's God, or straight up shows it, people wonder if maybe Mark just added that in because he was writing in a different language, he could have manipulated the language, and hid things to make it sound like Jesus said he was God. But at the time, people wouldn't be able to see it because they spoke Aramaic and not Greek. I got quite a few comments about this on my video about Jesus walking on water. So I decided I would unpack that a little bit. I think one way people have been approaching the language barrier issue is maybe with our Western mindset of most of us only speak one language. And so that makes it a little bit tricky. We look back at them and we assume that they were the same, like people didn't have knowledge of multiple languages. But as I looked into this a little, I looked on history.com and history.com notes that people were multilingual at that time. 
Greek was the common language in Judea, the eastern part of Rome, but they spoke Latin for military and legal matters. Then you've got Jews living in Rome, and they used Aramaic as their common language, but they were around all these other languages. So people knew more than one language. They were around the other languages regularly. So if Mark started adding things to the story, there were other people around who would have noticed that and been like, ah, that's not right. The story was probably circulating in both language too. There is a theory, I can't necessarily prove this, but there is a theory that Mark wrote a gospel in Aramaic first. And the reason he would have done that is because the Jews were speaking Aramaic. So he could have first written to the Jews, which Matthew did, and then he could have turned and been like, you know, people who are not Jewish need to know this story too, so he wrote it in Greek. The tricky part is we don't have a copy of an Aramaic gospel anymore. There's something called the Q theory, and it's the belief that there was some initial source, possibly Mark's Aramaic gospel, that the other gospel writers were using as a source. And I took a course from Justin Bass on the early church documents, and one thing that he said is, in Mark's Greek gospel, there are some untranslated Aramaic words, which is why he thinks that Mark initially wrote in Aramaic and then translated it to Greek or someone translated it to Greek. So the way I look at it is I can't say for certain until we have evidence of something like that, but it is kind of intriguing. But one thing we can say for certain is the language barrier is not as significant for the Gospel of Mark as maybe it seems to us today coming from a culture where we primarily only speak one language and we're not familiar with other languages. Their culture was a melting pot of different cultures and different languages, and there was a lot of overlap. And also at that time, the Jews went to school, so a lot of them could read and write, and it's estimated that Romans, some could read and write, maybe around 15%. So even though that's a small number, there were enough people around who could read and write and who were bilingual that it would have been a lot harder for Mark to pull a fast one and change the meaning of the story than it might seem to us today. guys i hope that was helpful what i hope you take away from this is that in the internet age there are tons of questions out there and skepticism about jesus and who he was but don't let those scare you i think there are good answers out there too some of the claims that are out there sound very convincing and you'll hear them so often that it's easy to think that well that must be historically accurate or that must be the accepted view by scholars. But I find that maybe a lot of people hear the questions and then don't look into them. Well, I want to encourage you guys to check stuff out. When you hear a claim that causes you to doubt or struggle with your faith, check it out. And I'm hoping that our Brewery Ministries YouTube channel and the podcast can help you with that. And we'll try to find you some sources. If you want to read more about this story, 
I highly recommend the Faith Life Study Bible. My Cultural Background Study Bible is pretty good, and it will also support the idea that Jesus actually identified himself as God when he was walking on water. But if you use that one, I would pair it with another study Bible because I, I do find it's a little bit inconsistent in places, but I still like that Bible overall. If you really want to get into the weeds, it's a little bit boring, but any, any question you have about translation issues, scholarly interpretation, you can find in the Word Biblical Commentary on the Book of Mark by Robert Gulick. Thanks so much for listening. We've been adding a lot of new content to our Brewery Ministries YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out. I'm a lot more regular at posting videos over there than I am at making podcasts right now, just because the videos take so much work, and we've realized that that needs to be our focus for our ministry in addition to the in-person discussion group and the Zoom discussion group. So unfortunately, I'm sort of treating this podcast as kind of like a secondary thing that I'm not able to keep up with on a weekly or even a bi-weekly basis, but I do hope to keep releasing some content here. And as we're able to add more people to the Brewery Ministries team, then I will hopefully be able to start doing this podcast again on a regular schedule. But to have the time to do that, I'm going to have to find some more help video editing. I've got two guys, Brian and Nate, who are helping me out with video editing, so I'm, I'm really thankful for them. But I am still doing quite a bit of video editing during the week, and that's taking time away from the podcast. But hopefully that will change at some point as we grow. All right, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, you can email me at breweryministries at gmail.com, or you can reach out through social media, Facebook at Brewery Ministries, on Instagram at Brewery Ministries, or comment on our YouTube channel at Brewery Ministries. All right, everybody, thanks for listening, and I will catch you again soon. 